Well, greetings, church. Greetings. All right. Believe it or not, there are four people here that are ready to go. And for the rest of you, I greet you also, and I'd like to invite all of you to open your Bibles to Mark 14, the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. And in a moment, we're going to take a look at a picture of devotion and disloyalty. I'm going to leave these stools up here as a constant reminder in the message. On my right is a picture of devotion, and on my left, a picture of disloyalty. But before we get to that, let me share something with you from my past that a lot of you visiting maybe don't know. You see, the, the actual church here, they know that once upon a time, I was quite a student when I was in school, and I was known for a couple things. And so you, right now, are probably guessing, I wonder what he was known for. You see, there's two things I was exceptional for in my school, recess and lunch. <laughs> now, recess, you've heard the phrase, save the best for last. That happened to me a lot, especially when it came to kickball. You see, I was so good, they saved me for last when the team captains were picking. <laughs> and if that weren't a highlight enough, I was also known for my skills in the lunchroom. You see, I was known for loving dirt bikes. And my favorite lunchbox was Evil Knievel. Show of hands, how many remember Evil Knievel? All right. So we have some people that are past the halfway point in life. What you may not know is that in my Evil Knievel lunchbox, I had the only choice of bread for that generation. It was two slices of white bread. And then I had this special kind of ham that was from this little deli section my mom would pick that one slice was used for tracing paper. You could see right through it. And so sometimes on a generous day, I would get two slices of that. And I would put that on that white bread. But what I was known for was what I put on next. And it's such a special thing, I was hesitant to share it with you all today because I still haven't seen it in restaurants. You see, I would take my chocolate pudding and spread it on my ham sandwich. And nobody would take me up on it. It was delicious. Now you're thinking, if you're visiting, what kind of pastor is this and what kind of church did we visit today? Well, let me tell you. Did you know, along with sandwiches, a sandwich is also a literary technique, one that the writer from the Gospel of Mark uses often. And so today, we're going to see how he uses that sandwich technique by introducing a story, and then right in the middle of it, he interrupts it with another story, and then finishes with the other story. So picture those two pieces of white bread, and to be honest, eh. And that's how I feel about the text sometimes. I'm like, eh, let's get to the meat, right? The ham and the chocolate pudding. And so today, let's take a look at God's word. We're going to start in chapter 14, verse 1. We'll read 11 verses, and then we'll spend some time with the Lord. All right, here we go, church. Mark 14, chapter 1, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. That's Jesus. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And wherever you want, you can do good for them. 
but you will not always have me. She had done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please guide our time and incline our hearts to your testimonies. And not to selfish gain, turn our eyes from looking at worthless things. And give us life in your ways. Help us to have hearts that are full of devotion, so much so that they are poured out as an act of love to you and to others. May we remove the many distractions we brought with us today so that we may learn from your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. The cross is foundational in the New Testament, where it is the focus of the four Gospels. The book of Acts traces the proclamation of the cross throughout the whole world as the Gospel spreads from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The letters from the apostles are filled with the theology of the cross and the practical implications for followers of Christ. The book of Revelation looks back to the cross, portraying Jesus as the perfect lamb who was slain to make redemption possible by his blood. The cross is the central theme of the final section of Mark's gospel in chapters 14 through 16, which Lord willing we will complete by the end of this summer. The backdrop from our text today is the Jewish feast of Passover and the unleavened bread in Jerusalem. It was a time of thanksgiving for God's miraculous deliverance of the Hebrews from the Egyptian bondage, which we can learn about in Exodus 12. The Jewish Independence Day included the slaughter of the Passover lamb, whose blood on the doorpost 1,400 years earlier had caused the death angel to pass over each time where he saw it, sparing the life of the firstborn in the family. The Passover commenced the weekend feast of the unleavened bread and commemorating the hasty departure of the Israelites from Egypt when there was no time to allow the dough to rise. During the time of Passover celebration, Jerusalem would swell from a normal population of around 25,000 to as much as 250,000, so 10 times with all the pilgrims gathered. Passover was also a time of intense nationalistic feeling among the people because it called to remembrance their deliverance from slavery. Moreover, there were a lot of Galileans in town, and they were noted for being an excitable people capable of great violence. It was especially nervous time for the high priests and their police force since the chance for an outbreak of riots dramatically raised during this occasion. The Roman governor usually moved from Jerusalem from his headquarters to Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast to monitor the volatile and passionate members of the pilgrims. The slightest provocation could set them off, and an early historian, Josephus, duly records the disturbances that broke out from past festivals. The betrayal of Jesus in our text begins with Judas's plot in verses 1 through 2 and 10 through 11, into which Mark inserts the story I mentioned about earlier of a woman who anoints Jesus' body for burial. This is the classic Mark and Sandwich I alluded to earlier, in which Mark succeeds in making an all-important third point without uttering a word. As in each sandwich technique, the middle story provides the key to understanding the whole. In our passage, we'll observe two lives that could not stand in greater contrast when it comes to devotion to our Lord, an unnamed woman who gave her best and a man named Judas who betrayed 
the Son of God. Of the woman, Jesus said, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Today, here in Virginia, is more evidence of his word coming true. Of the man, our Lord said, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And I dare say if Judas could testify today before us, he would painfully agree with Jesus. Let's now turn our attention to the meat of the passage and discover four works that make up the Mark and Sandwich. By placing this story between the accounts of the plot to arrest Jesus, Mark contrasted the treachery of Judas and the leaders with the love and loyalty of a woman who we will learn later is Mary. The ugliness of their sins makes the beauty of her sacrifice even more meaningful. The first thing I want you to see, it was a costly work. It was a costly work. Verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So one question, maybe you haven't seen this story in the Bible, is who is Simon? There have been numerous speculations, but the most plausible is that he is a man that Jesus healed. And this was an appreciation dinner. The other possibility is the dinner was a celebration dinner for Lazarus and his resurrection. Whatever the explanation, he had invited some excellent company. The Apostle John in his similar account tells us that Mary and Martha were there, and the resurrected Lazarus was reclining at the table among the rest of the disciples. No doubt the meal went well. Imagine the conversation that might take place there. I can hear some of the questions about the temple, about the Olivet Discourse that we learned about last week, and questions to Lazarus, like, Lazarus, what did you see on the other side? And what was it like to be brought back to life? As they were reclining, they witnessed a remarkable event, which they would never forget. A woman, John's Gospel reveals in John 12, verse 3, as Mary. She came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head, and John adds, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary is found three times in the gospel story, and each time she is at the feet of Jesus. Mary had a close fellowship with the Lord as she sat at his feet and listened to his word. She is a good role model for all of us to follow. What a reminder for each of us to make time to spend with the Lord each and every day with his word and in prayer. What an astounding moment. Mary unexpectedly approached her reclining Lord bearing a priceless alabaster vial of perfume, very likely a family heirloom, snapped the narrow neck of the flask and poured a generous portion on Jesus' head anointing him and then poured the rest of the contents on his feet and then humbly, worshipfully wiped his feet with her hair. It was an intense expression of devotion as profound as anywhere in sacred scripture. Now, you might be asking yourself, like some people on the sidewalk did today, what is nard? Glad you asked. You know, it is not spike nard uh, because this nard is not from the ginseng family that grows in the United States with his woody scent. Nor is it the nard the Greeks and the Romans favored from the lavender family with its delicate, sweet fragrance. This nard only grew in the Himalayas between 10,000 and 15,000 feet. And in biblical times, it was imported by camelback from Nepal. Today, 
It was transported via Amazon to our location, and you can find it at the welcome desk and in the connect room if you'd like to smell it after the service. <laughs> Mary pours her bottle over Jesus' head and feet. And in biblical days, people did not anoint feet with perfume. They anointed heads. And when one was named king, priest, or prophet, and then it was only men anointing men, never women. That would be scandalous. The only time feet were anointed was after a person died. Even more offensive, Mary touches Jesus, a single woman touching a single man in public against every social norm, not done even among friends. And then she does what no honorable woman would ever do. She removes her scarf and she uncovers her head. She pulls her hairpin, loosens her hair in a room full of men and wipes perfume off Jesus' feet with her hair. Mary rubbed his feet with perfume so precious that its sale might have fed a poor family for an entire year. Some contend that this woman is the only follower of Jesus who understands the implications of Jesus' teaching. She knows that he is destined to die and seizes this last opportunity to express her love for her Lord. One theologian said, People will soon understand more clearly what her act of pouring out precious perfume on Jesus' head means when they recognize that he poured out his blood for the many. The text prompts us to ask, how much is too much devotion for Christ? How much? A little oil, even expensive perfume is fine, but to break open a whole jar seems a little too extravagant. Do you know what this costly gift represents to me? The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we all have this treasure in jars of clay. Do you know what the jar of clay is? That's you. That's me. Do you know what the treasure is? The treasure is the Holy Spirit that resides inside every child of God. Now, are you willing to be broken so that the world may know who Jesus Christ is? I don't know what your alabaster flask is today. Maybe it's your children. Are you willing to say, take my children to the furthest ends of the world to preach the gospel? Or maybe your alabaster flask is your reputation. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your business. My prayer is that each of us would be able to say, you are the Lord of my work. You are the Lord of my wealth. And Lord Jesus, you are the Lord of my worship. Is all the above costly? Yes, it is. Is it worth your devotion because of what the Lord has done for you? Yes, it most certainly is. So the first work was indeed costly. Now see, it was criticized work. It was a criticized work. Verse 4 and 5. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. As a rule, it was a breach of etiquette for a Jewish male fellowship to be interrupted by a woman unless they were serving food in Jesus' day. Mark often reminds us, however, that societal and even Jewish values are not necessarily to be equated with Jesus' values. We may not know what Mary was thinking, but Mark tells us exactly what was going on in the minds of the bystanders who witnessed this scene. They complain about the waste of something so expensive. They scolded her in verse 5, 
And this word scolded translates a verb that means to snort or roar as used, for example, of horses. Some of you know what that sound is like. Judas, with the ancient abacus in hand, a man who knew the price of everything and the value of nothing, instantly calculated the waste as 300 denarii. Roughly a year's wage for a common worker. And in terms of today's economy, twenty-five dollars to $30,000 she just poured on her Lord. Judas criticized Mary for wasting money, but he wasted his entire life. John indicates that Judas, the money keeper, led the verbal assault. Judas pretended to care for the poor, as did the others. They clearly didn't understand who Jesus was, else they would have joined Mary in unrestrained worship. We cannot know whether their indignation is owing to the genuine concern for the poor or whether, as often the case, the poor are simply used as a pretext for other motives. We cannot know whether their indignation, again, was for the poor or not. But whatever their motives, they regard the costly devotion of the woman as a waste. Their condemnation obviously demeans the woman and her gift. And in asserting that there could be a better use for the money, however, they demean Jesus as well, whom they regard as unworthy of such extravagance. Daniel Aiken comments about such extravagance in worship by saying, the world, and sadly many in the church, will never have a problem with moderate, measured devotion to Christ. They will have little or no problem with too many possessions and a pursuit of a comfortable and convenient Christianity. But walk away from a real career and you will be marked as foolish, living a wasted life. Walk away from mom and dad to serve the Lord in inner city in America among the poor and hurting, and you will be deemed silly and impractical. Walk away from family and friends to head out on the mission field among an unreached people group, 7,055 as of May 5th, 2012. Taking your small children with you, and you will be chided as reckless, radical, even imbalanced, and in need of serious counseling, and maybe even drugs. Friends, no matter what others say about our worship and service, the most important thing is that we please the Lord. The fact that others misunderstand and criticize us should keep us, should not keep us from showing our love for Christ. Our concern should be for his approval alone. Now, you say, Pastor, I don't like criticism. Well, let me share with you how to escape it. Say nothing, do nothing, and be nothing. Then they will criticize you for saying, doing, and being nothing. Friends, choose today and determine that you are going all out for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. He is Lord of all. No matter who likes it, no matter who criticizes it, no matter how they complained against followers of Christ and their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, you might be criticized while you live on planet Earth. But in heaven, you have a God who applauds your love for him. I love how Paul puts it in Galatians 6, chapter 1, verse 10. For I am now trying to win the favor of people or God. Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. We've seen a costly work and a criticized work. Now, observed, it was a conscientious work. A conscientious work. Verses 6 through 8. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And wherever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. In Acts 7, verses 54 through 60, 
records the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Stephen sees the Lord standing at the right hand of God. Our Savior stands to receive his faithful martyred servant into glory. And here in Mark's gospel, we see our Lord in effect standing up for another faithful servant, a woman who has showered him with a sacrifice of extravagant love only to be ridiculed by those who should have known better. He began by affirming that what Mary had done was beautiful. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now why did Jesus call it beautiful? Let me suggest three things. First, because he was aware of her loving motive. Because he was aware of her loving motive. Paul tells us that if we have the greatest of gifts, if we sacrifice all and we do not have love, we have wasted our time. And it comes to nothing. Nothing. Love makes our gifts pleasing to God. The second reason it was beautiful is that it came from a spontaneous response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Among the tragedies that I've observed in life are times when we are moved to do something fine or noble, and yet often we do not do it and we yield to common sense or the busyness of life instead. We ignore the impulse to write a letter of appreciation or the prompting to tell someone we love them. Thus, the possibility of a thing of beauty is gone forever. When my wife and I and children were stationed in San Diego, I heard something so profound on the radio one day that I'll never forget it. I'll leave the pastor unnamed, but if I mention him, you would recall who he is. Written many books, had a very large church, and had been a pastor for about 25 years, and he had a radio broadcast ministry. And as I was driving to work that one morning, he broke down on the radio and cried. Do you know why he cried? For the first time in 25 years of ministry, he received his first thank you card. Now the assumption would be that someone that well known would be getting them every week, right? But after 25 years, someone responded to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and gave that pastor a thank you card. I'm sure it was a breath of fresh air for him. Now I don't share that with you to all of a sudden want to receive a bunch of thank you cards. (laughs) But the point is that when God leads you to bless somebody in word or deed, follow up on that prompting. So many wonderful things can happen when we respond and obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The third reason Mary's work was so beautiful was it was not dominated by practicality. It was simply done to and for Jesus with no thought of whether it was practical or sensible. One Bible commentator said, comparing this incident with the widow and her two copper coins may help clarify things. The NIV translates the beginning of verse 8, she did what she could. Literally, it reads, what she had, she did. The parallels between the two women become clearer by translating it literally. The widow threw everything she had, all things whatsoever she has, the whole of her living into the treasury. We learned this from chapter 12, verse 44, a few weeks ago. Now, this woman pours out everything she has on Jesus. Both women serve as examples of total commitment that holds nothing back. In Jesus' sight, an act of value according to its motive and intent, and that, not its material worth, is what makes it precious in the kingdom of God. When one acts like this, no gift not even a mere two copper coins is meaningless. 
and no gift, even a year's salary, is wasted. Some readers misread verse 7, suggesting that Jesus is insensitive toward the poor. We should do good for the poor. Jesus believed that, and he taught it. The issue here is between always and not always. The poor are always there, but Jesus would not be. The opportunity to show him this kind of personal love and affection would soon be gone. Further, Jesus is God, and the first of the great commands always trumps the second. In placing himself above the poor, Jesus places himself above the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, coming from anyone else, this would sound boastful and insane. But coming from the Son of God, well, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? The gospel calls Christians to help those in need. It also calls for unrestrained worship of our Lord. Christians are to worship God and minister to others. The ideal is costly and leads to a thoughtful devotional life in which we love Christ so much that we pour ourselves out for others. One without the other falls far short of that dynamic that Christ wants for us. Now, as my friend Caroline read scripture today from Matthew 22, for those of you that have been with us for a while, you know we have been trying to build a culture in this location around that text of loving God and loving others. And I have shared with you often that to this day, I still have not received a fist bump from God at the end of the day for loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it is something I think we should strive for. And I think in line with that, as we strive to love God with all of our heart, we should also love our neighbors as ourselves. Imagine a church where the whole body is living this out. I believe with all my heart, if we are loving God and loving others the way God expects, we could not keep people away from this church building. And as a reminder, this is just a building. You are the church. Jesus' point was the disciples' priority should have been to worship him like Mary was doing. Worship is always the ultimate priority. While loving one's neighbor by caring for the poor is noble and necessary, loving the Lord is more important. The poor had a special place in Jewish obligations. This is stressed in Deuteronomy 15, 1 through 11. And I want us to get something engraved in our hearts. And I pray that you'll never forget it. There is more than one kind of poverty. Now, remember that. The greatest poverty in this world is not physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. Okay, we've seen a costly work, and we've seen a criticized work, and we've seen a conscientious work. The final ingredient in our Mark and Sandwich is it was a commemorative work. Look at verses 9, or look at verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. When Mary gave her best at the, feast of, at the feet of Jesus, she started a wave of blessing that has been going on ever since. She was a blessing to Jesus as she shared her love, and she was a blessing to her home as the fragrance spread. Were it not for Mary, her village, Bethany, most likely would have been forgotten. The account of her deed was a blessing to the early church that heard about it. And because of records in the three Gospels, Mary has been a blessing to the whole world and still is. The Lord's prediction has certainly been fulfilled. One can never know what the ultimate significance of his or her devotion and service be. The widow of her two mites never dreamed that anyone saw her offering, let alone that it would be memorialized for two millennia. 
Mary had not the slightest idea that more would be done for the poor with her wasted perfume than 10 million times 300 denarii could ever do. One Bible scholar said, the fragrance was soon dissipated in the scentless air, but the deed smells sweet and blossoms forever. Jesus' commendation of this woman also reveals that one can never be fully aware of one's own significance in or with a role in God's kingdom. Mary had no idea of the worldwide significance of her action, and it is also a mistake for us to think that our devotion is wasteful or insignificant. Who knows how God will use it? I remember when I was in school many years ago, I read about a lady in upstate Minnesota. And this lady was braver than most because she volunteered to teach junior high boys. One, because there were no men in the church brave enough to do it. But two, she had a heart for those little rascals. And over 40 years, she taught junior high boys. And of the boys she taught, over 200 became pastors and missionaries. Now, I bet when she volunteered for that role, she never thought that she would make an impact like that. But because of her faithful service, pouring her life out, well, let's face it, a very challenging demographic to teach. She put it all out there, and she taught those little boys. And the reason it's significant is at least 180 came back to honor her on a special occasion when she retired from volunteering. And they honored her and let her know that she was the significant voice in their life that led them to go into ministry. You never know how God will use your life. You never know. And may I remind you to never limit God by saying God cannot use you. What God does is take ordinary people like you and me and then uses them to do extraordinary things. I like how the poet Ira Stamphill penned it. If just a cup of water I place within your hand, then just a cup of water is all I demand. You are who you are, made by God, specially. My dear friends, all God asks of any mother's child in this building today is to do what you can. Jesus concludes with a pronouncement that matches the intensity of the disciples' earlier anger. And, I, and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in this whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So what exactly has she done to be worthy of such commemoration? She has, of course, expended a lavish gift on Jesus, but she also appears to be the first person to perceive that the gospel is realized only in suffering. Verse 9 is the last time gospel appears in Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark. And as its first use by Jesus in chapter 1, verse 14, it appears in the context of proclamation. The gospel and Jesus' passion, these two things cannot be separated. And they must be proclaimed throughout the world. Today we've observed four works of devotion placed between two pictures of disloyalty. These stools represent that for us today, a picture of devotion and a picture of disloyalty. Let's briefly look at the last two verses, and then we'll conclude. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. In Matthew 26, verse 15, we learn that Judas agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
the value of a slave accidentally gored to death by an ox, according to Exodus 21, verse 32. That's all he saw in our Lord Jesus. The note that Judas was one of the 12 warns Mark's readers that proximity to Jesus does not guarantee faithfulness. Indeed, greater intimacy with Jesus also requires greater watchfulness. If one sticks only to the gospel of Mark, Mark gives no clear motive for the betrayal. This lack of motive has significant implications. If Judas, one of the 12, could, without any discernible reason, become the one who betrayed his master, then every disciple is potentially another Judas. Attempts to find the reason or reasons to explain why Judas did what he did are diversions that prevent us from looking at our own potential betrayal. If we convince ourselves that Judas acted for this or that reason, we can also convince ourselves that we would not succumb to such deceitfulness. And as a caution, may I remind you that proximity to the church and to the Lord does not save you. Having family members that are believers does not save you. Attending a church does not save you. Giving money to the church does not save you. Doing good deeds does not save you. This, of course, brings up an excellent question. If you're exploring Christianity today, how does one get saved? Well, rather than me give you an opinion, let me read from God's word. Listen to Romans 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, to be honest, I sure want to be like Mary in this text. But oh, how often Judas so readily appears in the mirror. Only the gospel of my Savior can heal my sin-sick hole. If you are here today and you're exploring Christianity, the best news of all that I love to share is that God created you to be with him. He loves you. He cares for you. And every one of us, chief of sinners right here, have sinned against a holy God. And that sin separates us from him. And as I alluded to earlier, all those good deeds will not save you. But God knew that. And that's why he sent his son Jesus to save you. He loves you so much. That's why the cross is foundational to the teaching in the word of God. And without Jesus, we have no hope. But you see, he went to the cross on your behalf and mine. And he died. But the best news of all is God didn't leave him dead. He raised him from the dead three days later. And showing that he has power over the grave is a reminder that he also can resurrect us. And everyone, no matter how scandalous you think your past is, everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can be saved today. That's the good news. That's the gospel. What I'd like to do right now is pray for you. So everybody bow your heads and just listen to me for a minute. If you would like to receive Jesus Christ and be saved today, I want to help you right now. You can be saved if you'll prayer, pray a prayer, something like this. The words are not as important as it is uh, what you mean in your heart. Oh God, I know that you love me, and I know you want to save me. Jesus, you died to save me. I believe that, and you promised to save me if I would trust you. And I do trust you, Lord Jesus, right now with all my heart. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Would you pray that? Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Forgive my sin. Save me. Oh, save me, Lord. Pray it, say it, and mean it. And then, 
Pray something like this. Lord Jesus, give me the courage to make it public, not to be ashamed of you because you died for me. And more importantly, you were raised from the dead. I place my faith and trust in you and I pray it in your name. Amen. I pray if you're exploring Christianity today that you placed your faith and trust in Jesus. You can talk to me down front. You can talk to men and women in the connect room. We would love to help you understand the decision you've made. Today, we've seen a beautiful picture of devotion and a bitter image of disloyalty. The stools on this stage represent each picture, one of devotion and one of disloyalty. As I mentioned, I think most of us would like to be merry, but if we're honest with ourselves, we can find our hearts displaying the same disloyalty of Judas and not even for 30 pieces of silver. Devotion and disloyalty, two pictures with two very different destinies. Jesus loves you so much that you get to pick which direction you're going to go. For those exploring Christianity, the journey begins by placing your trust in Jesus Christ and his saving work. And for the believer listening, please know you are never more justified than the day you placed your faith in Christ. Even though your heart betrays the one who redeemed you, you shall stand forgiven. Praise God for that truth. Something I taught my children often, I have a son and two daughters, and sometimes they were actually a little ornery, most likely from the mother's side, right? I reminded them that no matter what you do, you will always be my son. You will always be my daughters. Now, was the fellowship broken sometimes when they were disobedient? You bet it was. But I still had a son, and I still had two daughters, and I would never disown them. And if I, being a man with a sinful nature, feel that way, how much more will God hold you in his hand? And if God holds you in his hand, nothing, nothing, take a review of Romans 8 sometime, 28 through 39, nothing can take you from God's hand if you are his child. That's the hope we have today. When Mary put that perfume on Jesus Christ, by necessity it got all over her hands, her clothing, her hair. And I want you to think about that. Anything you pour out on Jesus always comes back on you. Just remember that. Let's close our time by going to the Lord in prayer. I've placed two prayer prompts on a slide for you today to guide our time. The two things I want you to go before the Lord are this. Where is God leading you to show more devotion to him? And then secondly, what is God revealing to you in areas of disloyalty? Bow your head, spend some time with the Lord, and then I'll close this.
Thank you for the picture of devotion and disloyalty in your word today. I know these are hard things to come before you, but I do pray you would challenge your children. Help us to be more like your son, Jesus. Father, I pray for those who are still seeking to find you or that you are seeking them, that they would respond to your invitation today. And Heavenly Father, forgive us as a church for having prayers that are so vague that if you were to answer them, we wouldn't even know it. We thank you for the picture of devotion found in the life of Mary. Please help each of us to model this type of devotion in our own lives. And may we respond and worship as you lead us. We also thank you for the caution found in the life of Judas. May it keep us rooted in your word and may it guide us in a life that honors you. Father, thank you for the wonderful cross on which the Prince of Glory died. Thank you that the grave could not hold our Savior. We also thank you for the promise that the grave will not hold us. We praise you and we thank you all in the mighty name of Jesus and the church said, Amen, church. If you're able, let's stand and worship together.